Alright, well it's been a good week, hasn't it? This week have had a lot of fun. We have worshipped. We have dug into the Bible. We've had some good practical teaching on discipling our kids. Tonight we're going to circle back around to the book of Ephesians. Where we were looking at the good news that, that fuels and energizes our own lives as Christians. And which motivates our purpose in life and our purpose as homeschoolers. God loved the world so much that Jesus came down to die on a cross for our sins, to reconcile us to God, to forgive our sins, and then by His resurrection, to bring us out of the old age of the flesh and into the new age of the Spirit, also known as the kingdom of God, this new age. And now the Spirit is um, forming us into a new people of God, a, a temple in which God dwells. And because we all get into this kingdom the same way, by putting our faith in God's grace expressed to us in Jesus Christ, we saw there's no more Jew or Gentile. It's not, or I'm sorry, I'm not better than you because I follow this parenting approach. You're not better than me because you use that homeschooling curriculum. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So despite our differences, we can learn to love, uh, to forgive one another like God did for each one of us and keeps on doing. We can learn unity. And in being unified, despite our differences, we show the world a taste of what one day will be true for the whole creation. When one day all things will be brought to complete unity under Christ, the king and the head of them all. Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 1.22. So how do we live this out in families? That's what we began looking at Wednesday night. For those of us who are married, it begins with husbands and wives. Wednesday night we looked at husbands, at their calling to love their wives until it hurts. Uh, Rob Reno, and he and I didn't plan this, but he looked at parents and children for two nights and now we're coming around on the last night to look at husbands. So we covered the whole family. God knew what he was doing. And so now we get to Ephesians 5, 22, to tackle that verse, wives submit to your husbands. I said I was crazy a few nights ago. This is why. <laughs> um, so turn me with, with me there if you have a Bible. We'll look at the passage a little bit later, actually about midway through our time tonight will actually read the passage. Now, this passage, this verse, Ephesians 5.22, is unpopular these days, right? You may have had the experience I've had a number of times of being at a wedding where this verse is read and you look around at all the young, sophisticated people around you and you can almost see on their faces what they're thinking as this verse is read. How quaint. Or how dark ages. Or... How offensive. After all, we've made so much progress towards women's rights that these verses can sound to many people today like they were dreamt up by the Taliban or something. Well, I want to suggest to you this evening that many of us today have grossly misunderstood the Apostle Paul who penned these words. 
And if I could use the word radical to describe those who, years before it was popular, began working for women's rights and women's suffrage, then I think that in these verses in Ephesians, Paul actually out-radicals the radicals. First of all, I want to suggest that Paul, like Jesus before him, would in many ways agree with some of the radicals' aims to give women more respect and more opportunities and more equality. That's, of course, not to say by any means that Jesus or Paul would agree with everything that the women's movement has stood for. But it's to say that in many ways, both Paul and Jesus were way ahead of their own time in their treatment of and view toward women. But then Paul goes one step further and out-radicals the radicals. He suggests that the way to bring about this liberation and opportunity for women is actually submission. Now that's radical. Let me explain. First of all, when I read Paul and when I put Paul in the cultural context of his own day, it seems clear to me that Paul was one of the most radical, revolutionary leaders you could want to meet. We saw some of this Wednesday evening when we looked at what Paul had to say to husbands, right? Culturally, we saw that Paul was speaking into what, by our standards, was an extremely sexist, male-dominated culture. Women had few rights or freedoms or protections under the law. Wives shared their husbands' affections, we saw, and their husbands' intimacy with slave girls and lovers. Wives existed primarily to bear legitimate children and to manage their husbands' large households. And often, though not always, love wasn't something a wife ever experienced in marriage. Furthermore, we saw that in all the other household codes, which the Greeks and Romans had produced to remind people of their places in society, All of those codes reinforce the fact that women should be ruled by their husbands, often because women were viewed as inferior. That was often the reason that was given. And into this context, we saw Paul's household code was a radical departure. Paul does something nearly unheard of in this code here in Ephesians. Instead of telling husbands to rule, he tells them to love. Until it hurts. Instead of going on and on about women's responsibilities to obey their husband, Paul goes on and on about husbands' responsibilities to sacrificially love their wives. As we saw Wednesday evening, this kind of teaching, wherever it was embraced, was transformative, upsetting life in the household as people had known it. Tyrannical, selfish husbands, and not, of course not all were, but they all had the right and the power to be under the law should they choose to be. These husbands began learning under the good news to tenderly love and to serve their wives, their children, and even their slaves And you can be sure that some wives didn't know what to do with this. This new freedom, this new attention and affection, this new respect and honor. And so we find signs in some of Paul's other letters that women were getting out of hand, abusing these new freedoms to the shame of their husbands. And so Paul, for instance, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, has to tell wives to chill out. To be respectful to their husbands, to stop talking so much in church, to stop dressing like prostitutes and go back 
to covering their heads like proper ladies in their day did. You see, Paul's gospel, wherever Paul proclaimed it, was liberating. It liberated women, it liberated slaves. Just read the book of Philemon. It liberated Gentiles, as we saw Tuesday night. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Oh, different laptop. There we go. As we saw Tuesday night, in the new age of the spirit of God's kingdom that Christ had inaugurated, those old flesh distinctions, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, were done away with. That God has set his son Jesus on the throne of the universe. And from there, King Jesus is putting an end to old hostilities. Jesus is binding up wounds. Jesus is reconciling broken relationships. Jesus is restoring peace and unity to this sin-wrecked world. And Jesus is starting among his own followers. The brand new humanity he's creating through the spirit. We're to be exhibit A. We're to be and to show the good news to a world in darkness. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of the gospel, slavery can't continue. Bigotry, racism, sexism, classism can't continue. You may be familiar with John Stott, the highly regarded evangelical Bible expositor and evangelist. In his commentary on Ephesians, Stott writes, Our initial reaction to these liberation movements should be one of positive welcome, for we have to agree that women in many cultures have been exploited, being treated like servants in their own homes. We who name Christ's name need to acknowledge with shame that we ourselves have often acquiesced in the status quo and so helped to perpetuate some forms of human oppression instead of being in the vanguard of those seeking social change. Nothing in the paragraphs we're about to study in Ephesians 5 is inconsistent with the true liberation of human beings from all humiliation, exploitation, and oppression. On the contrary, to whom do women, children, and workers chiefly owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ? It is Jesus Christ who treated women with courtesy and honor in an age in which they were despised. So Paul preached what was in his day a radical gospel of equality through Jesus Christ. But now in Ephesians 5, Paul goes one step further. He out-radicals the radicals. He urges that the way to bring about this liberation and equality is not by power, not by force, but through weakness and surrender. Radical, huh? Of course, Paul learned this from Jesus, the crucified Messiah. The king who reigned from a cross, who defeated his enemies by surrendering to them, and who told us that if we want to enter the new thing that he's doing in the world, we need to pick up our crosses and follow him. To put it another way, Jesus replaced the power paradigm with the service paradigm. 
And Paul took up Jesus' service paradigm and argued that weakness and surrender was the way to bring about the liberation and equality which God's kingdom is about. So, submission is an expression of the radical service paradigm of Jesus, the crucified one. And so I hope this evening, as much as possible, to redeem the word submission. Because we're so steeped in the power paradigm that when we hear the word submit, too many of us immediately think of words like weak, victim, doormat, old-fashioned, dictator, oppression. But that's because we're not being radical enough. We so quickly forget that Jesus' way is the way of the cross, the the radical way of service, not the conventional way of power. But when we view submission through the lens of the service paradigm, submission is transformed. So before we get any further into tonight's passage, let me debunk four modern misunderstandings about what Christian submission is. The first myth is that to submit is to be inferior or incapable. This myth assumes, for example, that a woman who submits to her husband must be unable to think for herself or lacking in confidence or ability. But that just doesn't follow. Former lady, uh, First Lady Laura Bush recounted a story about she and then President George W. Bush when they were staying overnight with their parents. Um, she writes... George woke at 6 a.m. as usual and went downstairs to get a cup of coffee. As he sat down on the sofa uh, with his parents, he put his feet up. And all of a sudden, his mom, Barbara Bush, yelled, Put your feet down! And George's dad replied, For goodness sake, Barbara, he's the President of the United States. (laughs) And Barbara said, I don't care, I don't want his feet on my table. And the president promptly did as he was told, for as Mrs. Bush observes, even presidents have to listen to their mothers. (laughs) Even presidents have to submit to their mothers. But of course, that doesn't mean the president is inferior or lacking in ability. Submission just recognizes that we play various roles in life, and in certain roles, we may choose not to exercise all of our strengths and abilities on our own behalf, but rather for the sake of someone else to hold back in order to give that someone else who deserves our respect what they need. Myth number two is that to submit is to be weak and powerless. Here I think C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is helpful. How many of you have read the book or seen the movie? A lot of us. Remember when Aslan, the great lion, was at the stone table? And he let the white witch's wicked helpers tie his huge paws and shave his magnificent mane. And they were wary because they knew with one swipe or one bite, he could have killed them all. But Aslan didn't. He submitted to their cruelty. It wasn't because Aslan suddenly became weak and helpless. No, he, he remained, he retained his, his dignity and his power the whole time. But yet he chose to willingly restrain that power, to bring it under his control for the purpose of love, for the purpose or for the good of others. That's submission. 
A third myth about submission is that it's something that's forced on you by someone more powerful and you have to take it. But that's not submission. That's oppression. Submission is something that you freely and willingly choose. We saw that while the other household codes of Paul's day encouraged husbands to rule their wives, Paul never does that. Paul only tells husbands to love. So, married men, listen very carefully to this. It is not your job to enforce or to police whether your wife submits to you. Let me say that again. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell men to enforce or police whether their wives submit to them. That's between her and God. As we saw Wednesday night, what the Bible emphatically tells us husbands our job is, is to love our wives until it hurts. Fourth myth about submission. And that is that to have to love someone is a better deal than to have to submit to them. When you really stop and think about it, it, it's kind of astounding that people get so bent out of shape that wives are told in the Bible to submit to their husbands. Now, I understand all the cultural baggage and the reasons for that. But, but nobody gets upset that husbands are commanded to love their wives. Maybe it's because we have this false Hollywood notion of love. But Paul says husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church on a cross. Ouch! The truth is that love and submission are both branches growing from the same root. They're both shades of the same same color. They're both expressions of the service paradigm, which Christ calls his new humanity to. And husbands and wives are to live this good good news out in Christian homes. All right, so let's. Take a closer look at our passage now and see how this plays out. Before I read it, though, let me briefly put this passage in context. If you have your Bible and you're not open to Ephesians 5 yet, you can do that. If, if you've heard this passage taught on before or you've studied in, in depth, then you may be aware that verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, is actually the middle of a long Greek sentence which begins up in verse 18. Where Paul commands us, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the main verb. It's the main imperative in this whole sentence in Greek. Remember that we no longer live in the old age of the flesh, right? We've, uh, God has, has brought us into the new age of the Spirit. And, and so we've got to let this Spirit fill us up. We've got to let this Spirit... Um, Guide us and direct us and transform our lives, every part of our lives. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. You live in the new age of the Spirit. That's part of the good news. And after that command to be filled with the Spirit, Paul then goes on and gives several, all right, homeschoolers, uh, sixth grade grammar, several dependent participles. For the rest of you, I'll explain just a minute. Several dependent participles which describe what being full of the Spirit looks like. Verse 19a, be full of the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 19b, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. 
Verse 20, giving thanks to God for everything. And verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then starting in verse 22, through this household code, Paul applies his exhortation to submit to the relationships in Ephesian households, saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, some English translations don't make this clear, but in the Greek, verse 22 is so closely connected to verse 21 that the word submit doesn't actually occur in verse 22 in the Greek text, but rather is implied from verse 21. So let's read this. Um, And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to give you a literal Translation from the Greek for these first few verses as we begin reading up in verse 18, Ephesians chapter 5. But do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Maybe see her. Let's pray. God, thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write these words for the Ephesian church. Thank you for preserving these words, for causing them to be collected together with your other scriptures so they may continue to be edifying, encouraging, and transforming to us as they are our authority as we seek to understand your salvation, to know your Son, and to walk in a way pleasing to Him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me paraphrase what Paul is saying in these verses. He's saying, my main concern for you is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how you live in the new age. That's how you live out the good news as you participate in the kingdom of God. And when you are full of the Spirit, not only will you have a worshipful heart toward God, but you will also have a submissive heart toward one another. That is the same Spirit who moved Jesus to die for His enemies on the cross will enable us to discard the power paradigm of the flesh of the world and to adopt the service paradigm of the Spirit. So that we submit to one another instead of trying to make others give us what we want. Now remember again as we've. um, Or as we hear this. If we hear these words about submission and we view them through the lens of the power paradigm. We badly misunderstand and we wind up in a distorted mess. Much like a young Christian couple that a counseling friend of mine told me about one time. This couple came to his office for help. They had several small children and their marriage was in big trouble. 
Well, as the counselor asked the couple to describe their relationship, the topic of husband and wife roles quickly came up, and in particular, this issue of submission. And it turned out, as the counselor talked with them, that based on the teaching of their church, the two of them had agreed to work out submission in their marriage this way. If, a wife, if the wife needed um, help with the kids or with the housework, she could ask her husband for help. But since the husband needed to retain the authority in the relationship, he would flip a mental coin in his head, and if the, head, the coin came up heads, he would help her. But if the coin came up tails, he would say no, and he'd go back to his newspaper or his TV show or whatever he was doing. And the wife would submit to his decision and carry on accordingly. Well, needless to say, this arrangement was a big part of their marital problems. This couple had misunderstood submission. They were viewing it through the power paradigm. Not to mention the fact that that uh, they totally missed the fact that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But Christ, the king we follow, has called us to the service paradigm. We live in light of the cross. In light of the cross. And so, as we walk in the Spirit, as God's new creation people, the Spirit is teaching us to learn to serve one another and to submit to one another. And Paul calls both husbands and wives to live by the service paradigm. Husbands express it by loving their wives. Wives express it by submitting to their husbands. But why the difference? Why does Paul ask wives to submit and husbands to love? Why not just ask them both to submit or, or both to love? Uh, to put them on equal footing, so to speak. Well, evangelicals today answer this question in two different ways. And I'm sure in a room this big, we have both of these views represented here tonight. First, uh, some of you more than likely hold the view that the distinction between love and submission in Paul's letter here is just a, part, a cultural artifact. That, that the culture of Paul's day was still deeply male-dominated. That women had the, or men had the power and women didn't. And women were already expected to submit. That was no big surprise. That was just life as normal. In fact, the whole structure of households and societies was based on women's submission and men's leadership. And so this first view suggests that Paul saw that the best way to work out mutual submission in his day and age was for the women to continue doing willingly for Christ's sake what they were already required to do in that culture anyway. And meanwhile, as we saw Wednesday night, this view goes on, Paul would direct the bulk of his attention to working with husbands to teach them to take up the service paradigm toward their wives by loving their wives as Christ loved the church. So this first view then suggests that since our culture today no longer expects women to submit to their husbands, that mutual submission will look somewhat differently today than it did in Paul's day. So to, today, this view suggests it looks like husbands and wives both loving each other, of course, and both submitting to one another and working out their relationship and their roles in marriage based on their uh, unique giftings and callings that God's given them, rather than on a hierarchy where men have authority over women. So that's one view. The second major evangelical view, which no doubt many 
of you in the room hold tonight, counters that Paul's instructions to women to submit is as relevant today as it ever was. After all, look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. This second view says that Christ's relationship to the church wasn't just a convenient analogy that was helpful in Paul's day to describe how wives were to relate to their husbands in in the hierarchy of that day, but rather Christ's relationship to the church is always the best model for how a marriage relationship works. So according to the second view, husbands and wives now, as always, get to model the amazing relationship between Christ and his church And they get to model it when husbands love like Christ and wives submit like the church. Well, I'm not going to try to sort out this debate in evangelicalism tonight. We may disagree, but we're still one church called to unity in Christ, right? And the reality is, and people on both sides of this debate have made this point, that when a husband and a wife are living out the service paradigm and not the power paradigm. When a husband is is truly laying down his life in loving concern for his wife, and and a wife is, is truly submitting her desires and wishes to what's best for her husband, that when that happens, the difference between these two different views within evangelicalism melts into practically nothing. Another way of putting this is that both views agree that wives are to submit to their husbands. That's not a question in evangelicalism. The point on which they disagree is just whether and in what sense husbands are also to submit to their wives. And when a husband is living by the service paradigm, truly taking the leadership to sacrificially care for his wife, then whether he's submitting or whether he's loving becomes to a large extent, an argument about words. Now let me make two important caveats at this point. The first is that none of this is to suggest, as many people do today, that there's no difference between men and women. Clearly there are, and those differences have an important impact on what roles men and women play in marriage, especially during the childbearing years. Men and women also each have unique strengths and weaknesses, and and they have different needs. One author who's written helpfully about this is Brian Chappell. He's a preacher, a seminary professor, and he's counseled a lot of couples in the past as a pastor, and he's written a book on marriage. I think it's called Each for the Other. Now, whenever you say women are one way and men are another way, you're in danger of overgeneralizing and stereotyping. So please hear what Chapel says here as only general trends and tendencies which certainly don't apply in every case. But Chapel observes that husbands tend to be tempted to control their wives by dictating. That is, by using their position or their strength to dominate and overpower their wives. And wives, on the other hand, tend to be tempted to control their husbands by diminishing By using their words and their emotional expressions, we talked about eye-rolling last night, um, to shame and to undercut their husbands. So given a husband's 
proclivity to dictate, a woman's vulnerability tends to be physical. She needs to feel safe and secure. And given a wife's proclivity to diminish, a husband's vulnerability tends to be verbal and psychological. He needs to be respected. So to protect one another and to compensate for each gender's unique weaknesses, Chapel suggests that husbands are to live out the service paradigm by not dictating, but rather by loving their wives as their own bodies. And wives, likewise, are to not diminish, but rather to submit to and respect their husbands. Thus, the title of Emerson Egridge's famous book that no doubt some of you are familiar with, is based on 30, verse 33 of our passage, Love and Respect. The love she desires most, the respect he desperately needs. So ladies, since this sermon is for you tonight, if your husband is like the average husband, he needs desperately to be respected. And you can serve him greatly by finding ways not to diminish him, but rather to lift him up with your words, with your expressions. When I was in Washington, D.C., helping to plant a church there, our pastor used to like to say, when I started dating my wife, my stock went up. People suddenly thought better of him because of who he was and the way that his wife treated, or, well, girlfriend at the time, treated him. And I can say the same thing about my wife, Anne. When I started to date her, my friends at work used to tease me after they met her. They'd say, Anne is such a cool together girl. What's she doing with you? <laughs> Anne related to me and treated me in such a way that others thought better of me, and I thought better about myself. I could say, well, yeah, shucks, you know, she's my girl. A part of a wife's task in living out the service paradigm in marriage has got to involve elevating her husband. That's part of the honor that Rob Reno was talking about last night. And so that's the first caveat, that husbands and wives are different. They need different things. The second caveat is that mutual submission only ultimately works when both partners are committed to putting aside the power paradigm and to living out the service paradigm. But what do you do when you're trying to serve, but your spouse is still selfishly playing power games? That's the reality in many relationships, isn't it? In some cases, because despite our best intentions, we all slip back far too often into the old fleshly attitudes and the old ways of life. In other cases, because we have a spouse in particular who is not at all interested in walking in the Spirit. What do you do, women, when your husband is dominating or controlling, or habitually selfish or abusive. After all, Paul says right here in verse 24, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So what do you do? Do you just hang in there? Do you endure living in a loveless marriage? Do you, do you um, endure the abuse which is slowly destroying you? Well, I think Paul would be the first to agree that when he says... Wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. He doesn't really mean everything. 
Let me explain. Let's think about this. The classic example of this is the fact that husbands in Paul's day had the authority to dictate what religion their wives followed. When Paul says that women should submit to their husbands in everything, he certainly does not mean that they should deny Christ in order to submit to their husbands. Right? Paul would also surely admit that if a husband told the wife to do something illegal or immoral, she should not do it. So everything can't really mean everything. So what if your husband is disobeying Christ and betraying his own calling as a follower of Christ by abusing or demeaning or controlling or neglecting you? Does Christ mean for you just to submissively take it? Is that what Paul means here? Well, I think if we look at the rest of Scripture, we can make a good case that the answer is not always. Not always. That Christ's best for you may not always be for you to enable your husband to continue in his destructive sin. By putting up with it, by hiding it, by making excuses for it. But rather, that the best way that you can serve your husband is in some cases by taking the courage and the costly action of calling him on his sin and in some way exposing it so that he's forced or at least has a chance to deal with it. Now this is a complex issue. It requires more careful attention than we can give it right now, but um, I thought it was at least important to say that much because the reality is for some of us, we struggle with these things or we have a good friend who's struggling with these things. And so they're important things for us to think about. Let me conclude, having given those two caveats, with an image. Given that both husbands and wives are called not to the power paradigm, but to the service paradigm, and given that men and women are different, how do we follow the Spirit's leading? How do we become Spirit-filled people, Spirit-filled couples and families who live out the good news of Jesus? Well, at the risk of overgeneralizing, let me suggest a picture that helps me. This may not be helpful to all couples, but if it helps you, then great. Consider it a challenge. Here it is. When wives submit, they lift up their husbands. When husbands love, they lay themselves down for their wives. Wives lift up, husbands lay themselves down. And so wives, since this message is particularly for you, here's the challenge. Next time you're confronted with a situation with your husband where you're not sure what to do, Ask yourself, what kind of response would lift up my husband? What kind of response would lift up my husband? And then walk in the spirit of him who saved us and taught us to serve as well. And that will be good news for homeschooling families. Let's pray.
God, this is a difficult topic. It's a loaded topic. It's a topic we have strong feelings about. And it's a topic which we as evangelical Christians have had a lot of trouble in recent years trying to maintain the unity of the Spirit around. And I'm the first to say I don't know everything on this topic. I don't have it all figured out. And uh, God, I recognize that some people probably disagreed with what I said and some people probably found it helpful. But I pray, God, that your Spirit for each one of us would take one thing on this issue of husbands and wives from Wednesday night and tonight and speak it to our hearts and to enable us to follow you more faithfully and more gracefully. Enable us as families as we go home now, God, as we seek to love one another as husbands and wives, as we seek to partner together for those of us who homeschool in that enterprise, as we seek to raise our children through the joys and the difficulties and the challenges and the scary and secure times of that. And as kids, we seek to honor our parents and to learn to follow you and to make our faith our own. God, I pray that your good news would propel us forward, would gladden our hearts, and would empower us to do these things which are beyond our ability to do by ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.